Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. And this episode, Ruben is going to join us to talk about the risks of micro front-ends. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. What's up, everyone? My name is James Hewick, and I am a full-time technical content creator. Hello! My name is Amy Dutton, and I am a lead maintainer on the Redwood core team. And today, we have a fantastic sponsor in Contentful. So Contentful is a headless CMS. And the awesome thing about Contentful is it really makes everybody happy. It makes your marketing team happy. It makes your business people happy. And it makes your developers happy. Um, It gives everybody the tools that they need in order for your website to succeed. In fact, it's used by some very popular names like DocuSign, Plaid. So it is a great service. I encourage you to check it out. And special thanks to Contentful for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Yes, thank you to Contentful. And today we are joined, as we said, by Ruben, who's going to walk us through. I'm kind of curious where this goes because I I talked about this beforehand. Don't know a whole lot about micro front ends. I have general ideas but especially don't have the knowledge to go deeper into like what are the risks and things people should consider before they go down that route, which I assume this topic is coming from personal experience and wanting to let other people know things they can consider before potentially going down that route. So Ruben, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about your background? Sure. So yeah, my name is Ruben Casas. I'm currently a staff engineer at Postman. And I have been doing microphone tents for a while. I, I was previously at American Express. And I was working on a microphone team framework there, just basically uh, maintaining what American Express used to do for the microphone tens. And also join Postman to implement microphone tens there and trying to scale. Any more like my background, I uh, like complex problems. Not many people, well, people do, but I like the complex problems at scale, which is where microphone tens are really good at all. Uh, when companies are big, um, there are issues at scale. Cool. That's a great differentiator because I was at that conference. Which um, one? In <laughs> that conference. And, uh, you can't call it that conference because there is a... Can I do a quick interjection for yeah. my coffee sponsor, which is that conference? Oh. This is coffee from from Clark, from the, that conference uh, team. So if anybody's interested in that, they make some pretty good coffee and have an amazing conference. Continue. And next <laughs> month, right? You yes. can get tickets in mm-hmm. the Dells in Wisconsin. But no. this particular that conference that I went to was in Austin, Texas. And I was talking to our friend, Brad Garpy, and he works for Atlassian. And he was, he made the comment that there are so many different problems that people encounter when you're talking about working at scale. And sometimes it's hard to find types of content that will recognize that and help you find the answers that you need because a tutorial problem is very different than a Real enterprise world. problem. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to... It's hard to, it's hard to teach that too. Mm -hmm. I think like that's a challenge from a content creation perspective because you want to introduce people to stuff, but it's really hard to teach at scale problems when you're not working on things that are at scale, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Really quickly, Ruben, this is not quite the topic yet, but I I do want to kind of get your take on this staff as a title for any role is one of those titles. I think that a lot of people, including myself, look at as like, you know, as an individual contributor, that's one of the higher titles that you can have any, like any kind of thoughts on being at a staff level in your career, any suggestions for people that are looking to kind of progress and in, in career titles to that level? 
Well, it's, uh, it's the next progression in the technical direction. So it's very, very hard to define what a staff engineer <laughs> is, but there are many paths. And usually in the industry, you, you choose to you either go engineering, um, people management, et cetera, or you go the technical path. And I think staff is just the next step from the senior engineer where you operate in a more like larger scale mm-hmm. within the company, not just with one, within one team, but the company in general. Uh, and that is, if you want to keep your uh, technical skills, usually it's more to do with architectural decisions, keeping the bigger picture on like m- moving the company towards the right place from the technical perspective. So you, you operate at like a higher level than just, not just your team. It's more like a company-wide initiative where you'll be talking to many teams, many people, and you have that understanding of the overall technical aspect of, of the company where you work at. And the next step will be a principal engineer. And then you have roles in companies very, very, very much. Is that like really difficult to pinpoint what is yeah. what, where? But if we put it as is the next step, when you're a senior engineer and you want to go next, why is next? Then you will be operating at a larger scale, a larger part of the company, multiple teams, and keeping that technical direction. Love that. I've always described it as your sphere of influence grows, which is exactly what you're saying. Like you're able to influence not just yourself in terms of writing code and solving a problem. You're able to influence not only a team like your team, but you're able to influence multiple teams and across the company. So I love um, love that. That's exactly kind of how I think about the progression of software developer titles in their career. That's right. So it's uh, there is a, a really good book, actually. You, know, you mentioned that there's a good book, which is Staff Engineer, that people mm. can read if you're interested in this, where it explains what it means to be a staff engineer. Cool. And there is one word there that is really crucial that I learned, which is being glue. Like, you don't know exactly what you do, but you are the glue that holds the things whole together. Thing together. Yeah. yeah. So cool. uh, that's a really good quote from that book, okay. which is uh, Staff Engineer. Cool. Is that by O'Reilly? Yeah, or it's about Will Larson. Yes, that's the catchy okay, that one. Sh- I'm going to share a link. I saw Amy's eyes as soon as you mentioned the book. Her eyes were like <laughs> searching for the for the <laughs> link, so we'll have that available for people. Do you want to kind of kick us off by giving an idea, an overview of what micro front ends are? Like, I've worked with microservices before. I've never worked specifically with micro front ends, but I think for a lot of people including mainly myself, like micro front ends is maybe something they've heard of, but probably have very little actual context for what that actually means. So do you want to give us just a quick overview of what that is? Yeah. So, and probably because we haven't heard it, it's because uh, it's a very specific problem, a solution to a problem at, uh, again, a scale. So, and you mentioned microservices and microservices are exactly like the parallel. Companies have tried to split their applications because more composable modular pieces. And we have done that in the back end. So if you, if you imagine the, the back end, when they moved from microservices, they split the front end and the back end, and the back end was split into microservices for mm-hmm. a larger company. But if you think about it, the front end remained as a monolith. It remained just a, a single unit of deployment. And that was fine, or it's fine for a lot of companies. But when the company also grows so much that that front end starts growing and growing and growing, and things start to break, then people started thinking, okay, is this microservice architecture good for to solve this problem? Can we apply it to the front end? Can we get similar benefits in terms of team autonomy, independent deployments, making sure that you don't they can develop and ship faster? Like it's not something that is preventing us from moving faster. And that's basically like the comparison between what 
is micro front ends and microservices. They're very similar, but applied to the front end. And the official definition is, you know, is splitting your front end application into modular pieces uh, that can be deployed independently, but at the end they are composed into uh, a graded whole, like a, an application that for users they don't realize it's micro front end, so it's a single unit. Everything comes together at once. And the users will not see any difference. They will just see uh, the same application. It's another, so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, maybe this gets into the risk side of it that alluded to with the title, but how do you prevent, say, like the same component from being built multiple times just because you're all like using pieces? So I, I think this is not a problem with just microphone tens. If we think about it, mm-hmm. uh, the company large enough a lot of teams will be building their own thing and then they re- realize that they are building their own buttons and then you end up with 20, 30 buttons mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. people are building. So this is not a problem with my front ends, but it's, a, it's, also, it's um, a problem that I solved with a really good design system. And I have to mention design systems are awesome and usually a lot You're of speaking companies... Amy's language. <laughs> <laughs> my heart's so happy right now. <laughs> And th- you don't have to use microfrontends to use a good design system. Design system is the foundation for this. So you need a really good, strong design system where you are creating your atomic components, like building blocks for you to build applications. So as you said, you are not building the same thing over and over again. Now, how do they fit with microfrontends? Is they are the building blocks, but microfrontends are more like composition of all those components. And then the business logic also. If you think about a design system, it doesn't have any business logic, or it shouldn't. Like the components are atomic, and they are multi-purpose, and they don't have a lot of business logic. They are more like Lego pieces. Microfrontends, you can compose a lot of those components and then create a smaller or bigger application. It doesn't have to be big or small. We get into that. But they have like a purpose. They produce an outcome for the user. And they are usually owned by a team. So this team owns the dashboard and the dashboard is a very complicated application. And that dashboard is made up of multiple components from the design system. But the dashboard team, they can basically release that dashboard independently and they don't have to be blocked or talk to anybody else from the company, allegedly. Well, it's really interesting that you kind of caveated the allegedly there because I'm wondering if a lot of what you'll talk about is problems that I experienced with doing microservices at FedEx because it was one of those things where we're just like microservices, microservices, microservices do it. And there are benefits, but also things that you don't necessarily expect become a lot more complicated. And you kind of hinted at like allegedly one team <laughs> owning one piece can ship an update, blah, blah, blah. But you also have to remember all of these other pieces are potentially have some dependency on this piece. And so if an API changes or a version changes or anything like that, it's you're still having to coordinate with these other people to make sure they're on board. And there's like best practices with backwards compatibility and all these things. But it, it's still a very complicated network of things that, like you said, have to be pieced back together eventually. That's right. And I, well, we're getting into the risks, but <laughs> what I have to say is the architecture is definitely more complex. So I have to say, Complexity is one of mm-hmm. the, the main downsides, as you mentioned. It becomes more complex. I think I remember someone said, the best thing about microservices and microfrontends is that your teams don't have to talk to each other. 
But then the worst thing so about scary. microservices <laughs> is that they don't like, talk to each other. Yeah, is they have you know they don't have to talk to each other. Yeah. So that's that's the problem that it would require a different level of maturity, and uh, the teams have to learn that with the responsibility, with the benefit of independence, comes also responsibility of making sure that you are integrated and that you don't break contracts and that you are not making breaking changes, etc. So. There are a lot of benefits, but also when things start to get connected, which is another risk, they start becoming even harder to maintain than yep. if they were a single unit. There's an interesting question in the chat, which is maybe slightly, so maybe we'll do this question, then we'll come back to like diving deeper into the risks. And, and one of the things I also want to talk about before I forget is like, or ask in a minute is like, what are issues at scale that people don't consider? Like amount of API requests coming in, hitting limitations, database queries, hitting limitations, whatever that is. But really quickly, Goose in the chat mentioned or asked, could integrating a headless CMS be considered an example of using a micro front end on your site? And I'll take this like one step further back. A lot of what we do now is we use third-party services to do different pieces of our application for authentication or headless CMS content or payments with Stripe or whatever it is. And it kind of has, it feels similar, right? Like somebody else is owning these pieces and we're having to integrate and bring those together. Does that sound similar enough to kind of draw that parallel to you? And there is a big difference. So when you talk about our headless CMS, that is the backend and we have Mm -hmm. the front end that consumes Mm -hmm. content on the CMS. So that is the split of front end and back end are two separate things. Now, the difference is, and this is a very big misconception with microfrontends, is that it's not about a technology. The microfrontends architecture is more about a solving an organizational problem. When your companies are growing so fast that you are unable to move fast and de- deliver value to your users because it's so big that you can't really make that application run and you have a lot of problems with CI and a lot of problems with people making a modification, small, tiny change here, and then breaking something else there. And if you think about it, this is not a technical, purely technical problem. It's more like an organizational scale, companies growing, multiple teams, hundreds of developers problem. And then microfrontends is the technical solution to try and alleviate and fix those problems. So that is the main misconception, like when we... As, as engineers, we love to, you know, have that technical and challenge. And when we hear microfrontends, we immediately think about, okay, what's the technical aspect of it? What's the technical solution? Or how was it? What does it look like? But actually, it's more of an enabler for, uh, to fix uh, an organizational problem. When people, when you have hundreds of developers, what do you do? Is <laughs> that side of, one of the aspects of it, at least. I think I've known that internally. But it's very interesting to have that be explicitly explained, like a technical solution to a non-technical problem of like the growth and teams and how to keep people in sync. But most importantly, like ability for individual teams to continue to do their work and not be held up by other teams, which still is like semi a myth because there are dependencies because you have to know like, again, versions and different things like that of what other people are doing. But really quickly, like, what are some of those like high level issues that teams and or technical projects hit at scale? Like, is it database? Is it your server? 
Is it not being able to process things fast enough? Like what are some of those things that we like when we're just, when I'm just doing a YouTube video to teach people something basic, what are some of the things that I'm not considering because I'm not being used by a million different people? Well, there are two aspects. And I think you mentioned most of the issues that you encounter with the backend. So when we talk about the backend, if you already split the backend into microservices, then yeah. usually the next evolution of your architecture will be look at like a micro front ends for your front end. So the technical limitations that you hit at scale for the backend are, you know, very complex. Your, as you mentioned, database, throughput, all of these things. If you have move your front end out of that, then your backend team will be able to scale and, and give you the right throughput and the right resilience of the system to handle millions and millions of users and traffic. If you think about it, the front end, even if it's like a server vendor application, you, you have a problem with scaling of that server, but you can handle quite a lot of traffic there. And even with monoliths, I'm now talking about micro front end, monoliths can handle a lot of traffic as well. And they also work fine. There are many cases where single monolithic application is serving millions and millions of users. I think one example, if you didn't know, this is a fun fact. Stack Overflow runs on a monolith and is on-prem. They don't use microservices. They don't split the backend and frontend. It's just a single monolith monolithic application. Wow. And that's millions of users every day. Yeah. Um, maybe less now that ChatGPT is around. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but... But that's one case and where they just steal a monolith. Another case is, you know, like Ruby on Rails mon monolithic applications like Shopify and GitHub on, for a long time was a single monolith built on Ruby on Rails. And they managed to get a lot of traffic through, through those monoliths. And, and again, that's not a problem because if you think about it, the technical solution in that case could look very, very different. But if you look deeper and see can they develop and deploy independently their front-end and back-end and also their front-end multiple pieces? If they manage to solve that problem, great. I would be like, well, they manage the problem better. They have an organizational structure that is not that big of a deal. They manage somehow to make it work. But if your organization is already using microservices and you are finding that the front-end became the bottleneck now, like the front-end is now taking you know, one hour to build, you know, you can't release every day because it takes a lot of things to happen for you to be able to release. Like the CICD takes long, running the tests is long. And also one of the main problems is that it's so big that it's now all interconnected. So you are not able to make changes without affecting the rest of the application. And that's the main downside of this. And this is where microfrontends are like, okay, if we split this apart, can we make changes independently and more confidently that it's not going to affect something else in the application? How did you... What was your journey to onboarding to microfrontends? I think you said before Postman, you were at American Express. And I think you said you did micro front ends there. So mm -hmm. was that something that you were part of the conversation to choose and adopt from scratch? Or was that something you walked into at either place? What was, did you ever, were you ever part of the conversation to make the decision to go that route? At American Express, I joined when it was already in progress. So okay. they already have like a decision on the framework. And 
but the the fact that they went that way a long time ago actually was one of the first companies trying this flavor of micro content because this is the other thing micro contents are not that new mm-hmm. we have been doing certain flavors of it for years you know like iframes if you think about it iframes are encapsulated and you can kind of deploy applications into a separate place and then combine and then them with iframes yeah. so it's it has been out like a concept for a while and server side includes is another example of kind of stitching things together but it was only until like 2015 2016 which was what by the time when amic started looking into it when there was an article by Mark, martin fowler the mm. his website and the thoughtworks company came up with this concept when they first used the term micro front ends and it was because you know they talk about a lot about microservices and they saw a lot of companies like amix included and a lot of companies just building this new type of architecture where they were just giving these individual teams the possibility to develop, develop and deploy these applications independently. So that's when when started. And at Amex, there were many iterations. And I learned, the reason I'm talking about risks is because I learned how to implement something incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> so you learn how to make it properly. A lot of the, the place I've learned about the risk is that this architecture implemented incorrectly is very, very dangerous because you could end up with, you have a problem, right? You want to go fast and you want to develop and give independence. But if you don't decouple that application and your teams are still tightly coupled, you have now a distributed monolith. A distributed yeah. monolith is basically, and it's the same in microservices, is basically you now, instead of deploying once, you need to deploy multiple small pieces to get the same outcome, which is a consistent application. And a story, and this is from one of those cases. Uh, one of the, one senior engineer came to me once and said, oh, well, I hate microcontents, they don't work. And I was like, okay, what is the problem? It was like, okay. Before we had uh, this application, we used to deploy it, and that's it. Now with microfrontends, we have all these modules, like independent microfrontends, we have 70, seven zero. And the application wasn't that big. I looked at what the application did, and I was like, this is, it's just a dashboard. It has, you know, five, six, six different pages, but it has 70 modules that they had to deploy independently. They don't, they didn't even have a 70 developers, <laughs> right? They, they have a couple of two or three, four teams. And they were like, listen, this is what happens. Whenever we want to release, we have to deploy A, B, and C first. Otherwise, mm-hmm. D and E will break. And if we are going through the deployment and then halfway through module uh, Z fails, then we have to roll the whole thing back. And I was like, what a nightmare. That, what, that is an absolute crazy system. And I was like, okay, this is not, this is not a problem with microphone tens. It's you are... You have a distributed monolith. Mm-hmm. You have to de- deploy everything to get something to users, which is the opposite. The point of micro frontends is that you deploy one module or application that is owned and developed by one team, and they are independent enough to manage that deployment themselves. So <laughs> that's an example. I love to tell the story because it's not about how the architecture is, the architecture is bad or not. Is about how it's implemented, and a badly implemented architecture is is worse than 
you know, than the architecture itself. It's worse than no architecture at all, in my opinion. So that's a funny story on one of the risks that I think I mentioned is that you may end up with a distributed monolith if you're not careful. What are some of these other solutions that you recommend? I've been looking into this. The thing with microfrontends is people don't realize that it's a, it's a solution for a really specific problem. So if you have a problem, what I intend to recommend is check what the problem is. First, identify your problem. And then you have options to try to solve that problem. You can have, for example, some companies have adopted modular monolith. So instead of going really granular, they still have two or three large application ish that they combined and then they have some sort of independence. Monorepos are great as well. They are not, it's not comparison between monorepos and microfrontend because monorepos usually are more like how to organize your code. But organizing your code properly could also help you solve some problems, which are, you know, like the application is not very tidy and everything is everywhere and I can't find anything. And it takes me six, eight weeks for a developer who's joining to find how to change the application. So if code organization is a problem, then a mono, uh, monorepo will definitely help. If the code organization is not a problem, but the team autonomy, like I cannot have one of the teams because they move faster than the rest of the company being blocked by the rest. Like <laughs> some companies have this concept of having like labs or, or teams who are experimenting all the time and they need to be deploying and showing value to the users quickly to get quick feedback. But if you link that to the rest of the product or the rest of the application, which has more stable and predictable life cycles and release trains, then you have a team that is really annoyed that they are unable to put something out very, very quick for the users. And when things are wrong, like when there's a bug, that's another thing. There is a bug that needs to go out very quickly and you can't because the rest of the application is you're unable to, to put into production because you need to go through many layers of testing approvals and etc. So yeah, try. My recommendation is there are solutions out there. I have a diagram that I created where it's like an evolution of what you can try. And then you can, before going from monolith to 100% decouple microservices, microcontent. You can try this, making your code and making your application a little bit more modular, more decoupled, tidier. And then if nothing of that, if none of that <laughs> works, then you know that you are at the scale, usually large companies will have multiple teams and hundreds and hundreds of developers will be like, okay, yeah, we can't do this. We have to have a technical solution for these problems. I was curious, with micro front-ends, do you see bigger breaks or smaller breaks? Because it seems like if there's something that breaks, that it would be smaller because mm -hmm. it's only a micro piece. But <laughs> if there's a bunch of interdependencies, it seems like that could create bigger problems. And that's the key. So one of the risks is all these interconnected dependencies. Mm -hmm. So if your micro front-ends are, again, tightly coupled, then that is one of the reasons you shouldn't go with this approach of the architecture. So the first thing that you need to do for you to be able to adopt an architecture like this is to decouple their pieces. Like you need to be able to have in as much independence as you can. And any dependencies are ex explicit 
and they are known, like there are no accidental coupling. For example, the design system. I know he likes to talk about the mm -hmm. design system, but yeah, the design system <laughs> is a dependency that all of these applications will be using. Right? Mm -hmm. So the design system now became a, a dependency that if there is a problem with the design system, then you will have to update everybody, correct? Yeah. But if you think about it, the design system should not change very often. Mm -hmm. So the design system is very autonomous and you can usually not release breaking changes. And if you do have breaking changes, then obviously you have a separate version and separate plan for migration. But you have that contract, like, you know, you're not going to break it. Mm -hmm. You know that it doesn't change very often. And you know that if there is something that is depending on the design system, well, the, we are aware that the design system is something that everybody's using. So we need to pay very, you know, we need to be very careful and pay attention to that. The problem is when there are these dependencies that just appear and nobody knows who maintains it, who owns it, what's the breaking changes policy or, or the version policy. And when you find those and you start integrating with the applications and you start having this accidental coupling that becomes a huge risk to the system. Because in my example, when I was talking about this distributed monolith, you know, the reason they had to deploy one after the other and the other was because they were all interconnected. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So if the micro cannot be independent enough that they can be deployed independently and developed independently, and they depend on multiple other systems to be in place for them to work, then at that point, there is no, like, should not go that way because that is the worst of both worlds. You have a problem that became now a distributed problem, <laughs> distributed across multiple pieces. So that's going to be really hard to figure out what's wrong and what's breaking. From the front end side of things, do you use Storybook at all? Yeah. So, but Storybook is for, for the for component libraries and design mm -hmm. systems is amazing because you can test this independent atomic right. units right? Mm -hmm. and, and have all these stories that you can uh, have test cases and visual and you can define the contract. So it's really good for atomic components, etc. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's a perfect fit for you, Amy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's, when I think back to my time at FedEx, and I, I was there when we were kind of first adopting microservices, a big, one of the bigger issues was less technical and it was less, I think, on how our teams were divided or set up, although that was potentially part of it. I think a lot of it was culture and what people were used to and expecting expected to do from a development standpoint to like one, one of the things that we were starting to add or trying to add was automated testing. And so for people that have never done that before, trying to get people on board to do that on a consistent basis, honestly, just really didn't work. And you have people, developers, I think, that are used to doing things that, from their perspective successfully for 20 years. So to go through such a big methodology shift can be a big challenge. Is that ever something that you've kind of seen? Just like mentality from developers across different teams and, and how they have to adapt to a new way of working with code? Yes, and I mean, adapting to change is always difficult. The thing is, if you give team, like, teams autonomy, it doesn't mean that you're going to let them do you know, whatever anything. they want. Yeah, yeah. The, there has to be some sort of governance still in place. Otherwise, the system will basically just fall apart 
and governance is not like being uh, strict and I am just like tyrannic. This is what we have to do. No, it's more like guidance and best practices. As you mentioned, you know, automated testing is probably one of the best practices that you recommend. You know, these teams, they are not used to it, but we are encouraging them to implement the best practices. So we are giving them like the right tools and the, the right things that you can do. And mainly at big companies, you encounter something called the platform team or a team who is like responsible for making sure everything is in place for other teams and other developers to, to work and be productive. So you encounter, you find like they're contributing to the productivity tools of the company, the design systems part of like platform or a team that oversees all of that. And that's what I mean by having some sort of accountability and having that team overseeing or making sure that the other teams are not going to go build their own thing or do their own, you know, but we recommend best practice. And also there is a caveat, teams might not follow that. And that depends on the culture of your company and how you want to enforce that. But the governance is more about best practices. It's about giving the right tools to the teams to build and giving that sense of, we know what the overall product should look like. And when something is not going well, someone must know how to fix it or how to engage the right teams to fix it. So the, go- the governance is, is very important uh, because when you mention microphone tents, people are like, oh, I can be big example is mixing libraries. I don't recommend it. We'll be like, I want to use Vue. So if I use microphone tents, and can I use React or can I use Svelte? Technically speaking, you can. There are solutions out there. Like if I show you the technical implementation, there is a solution for that. You can use Vue and Svelte and React and Angular together. And yes, but should you do it? (laughs) And the answer mostly for companies is probably not, because if you think about it, a company needs to have some sort of first knowledge, being able to do knowledge transfer, being able to share tools. Like if you are using multiple frameworks, then the design system will have to be agnostic or being built on web components or something that is a framework agnostic. So knowledge transfer, sharing the tools, all of that becomes a problem and why you're gaining is not a lot. Like why, why there is no reason for a company to be, I mean, it has to be really, really large and the teams have to be very, very independent and different from each other for you to have an argument of using different frameworks. And now putting those frameworks under the same user experience, that is also really bad because if you think about it, the user is going to also suffer because a lot of JavaScript is going to be there. There will be a lot of hacks and workarounds to make sure that these things work and connect together. So it's definitely something that I don't recommend it. And, and the governance part is part of that, like deciding, okay, we are going to choose one framework and we are going to be choosing these best practices and tools and design system to be able to build something that is cohesive. Like it's not going to look like a Frankenstein monster website that it is very evident that it was built by people who don't really talk to each other. <laughs> so it has to be there. There has to be some sort of guidance. Without guidance, it just become like a mess and chaos. That's fair. There's a comment from Mark who has been doing microservices, micro ends as well. And he, he said, one big piece of advice was I think aligns <clears throat> with what uh, a lot of what you've said 
is don't do it without having a design system in place. Cause then people are basically all over the place doing their own things. And you like have this even bigger segmented pieces of code and components and, and things that are just further apart from each other when those specific pieces should be in line and they should come from a central place. And then there was a question. Maybe this will be uh, the last question to walk through. Goose is asking, are there any changes in uh, engineering org should make to make tightly coupled micro front ends? What are some canaries could you place in your process to catch coupled service during planning? I mean, to prevent tightly coupled micro front ends is that that's the question, right? Like you want to prevent it. No one to make them tightly coupled because that's the opposite of what I think so, <laughs> I recommend. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, to prevent them to being tightly coupled. This is an interesting one because there, there are tools, for example, in monorepos, there are some tools that will prevent you from importing code from where you shouldn't be importing code, for example. Having separate repositories makes it a bit harder because you need to go and find and import and install. But still, there is a risk where you can start importing things where you shouldn't be importing. The processes, I think designing the system properly, finding your dependencies ahead of time. And this is one of the things that happens very often is that these dependencies appear because people want to reuse code and they want to, you know, like we always talk about don't repeat yourself and create these libraries that are used by multiple people. But in an architecture like this one, that might be counterproductive because the moment you reuse something or the moment you try to deduplicate some code that is not meant to be shared, you're introducing coupling. You're introducing a dependency between two systems that should not be connected in the first place. So identifying those is very important and not abstracting very, like too soon. And I would say, like, do not try to abstract something until you know it's going to be, someone is going to own it and someone is going to maintain it. So that's why going back to the design system, the design system is very well defined. You know who owns it and it's an abstraction that we are, we know that we are introducing it for a reason. But when something is like, oh, there are two parts of the, the company and there is a lot of business logic and we are going to start putting if statements, if this part of the flow, then do that. And then you're sharing that. Then now you're sharing your fate. Like if they change together, they should stay together. That's, that's the rule. If we do things change independently from each other, then they can be independent. But the problem is when you have a lot of things that change together and to make change a change to one, you have to make change to the other, then, well, they should be together. They should not be two separate systems. I wrote a really interesting uh, blog post that I learned from one of the, the guys who wrote the, art, the microphone article. And it was like, sometimes duplication in this context is better than having a bad abstraction because that will lead to coupling. So sometimes it's more cost-effective to just duplicate the code. The, that will, if that will give you independence, then the duplication is worth it. If that will stop you from being independent, then you have introduced coupling to your system. I like that. There's like deeper conversations, I think, to potentially talk about how and when do you share code? Because that is, that is also one of the challenges because I think across different either microservices, micro front ends, there's certainly the potential to have shared or similar logic that could be shared and deciding when and where and how to do that would be an interesting topic to dig deeper into. Yeah, definitely. But 
can be shared, but should you share it? Yeah. That's the probably question in this type of architecture. And it's not just code. I'm talking about more like features. So sharing code and sharing like utility functions. I mean, they are just things that don't change very often. And there are things that can be put in an NPM package. We all import NPM packages from here, where and there and everywhere. Right. So that's how we share code in, in the JavaScript ecosystem or in the front end. But when you start sharing business logic, when you start sharing mm. larger and larger parts of the system, at that point, it becomes a, um, should we share this? Like, is this a good idea or can we just, what I recommend is start separate. And then if they definitely become, it becomes a challenge to keep them separate, then combine into one. But the, the risk is that you start combining and then putting if statements everywhere, you end up with spaghetti code in this dependency as well. So it's a tricky one. I think we can probably just accept at the end of the day that building software that scales is tough. <laughs> software that scales like from a technical perspective and from a people and company and culture perspective as well. well and I don't know how many times we said you can do this, but should you? But should you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the main recommendation. It's like you can from the technical aspect, you can do many things, but yeah. what you need to find mm-hmm. out is which one should it you be not? doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. I think we can uh, move into the last section of the episode, which is picks and plugs, where we pick something that we enjoy, we bought, watched, listened to, read, whatever, and then anything that we want to plug for ourselves. So I, um, I feel like I have like bad bags under my eyes. I get comments on YouTube. Oh, it's just because you get comments. <laughs> no, I. But I, I don't like, notice them. I look at them all the time, and I'm like, Ugh. anyway. And this may or may not actually have anything to do with that, but I want to kind of like potentially help with them a little bit, but also take a few minutes a day to just kind of relax and not necessarily meditate exactly. But anyway, I bought a, I'll put a link in the chat, a link or a, a kind of freezer ice pack thing for your eyes. So it's like an eye mask that you can put in the freezer. And so I've done this like twice. So it's not this big, huge, like existential thing for me. But the last two days I've spent just five minutes on the couch with that on my eyes, laying back and doing like a breathing exercise just to try to like, there's enough going on with buying a house and having a kid and all these trying to like do work in between that as well. So it's just my way of trying to take like five minutes to myself and kind of zone out hopefully. And maybe that it has a positive impact on the bags under my eyes, who knows? But um, so it was like eight bucks on Amazon. You just leave it in the freezer, pull it out when you want it and then put it back when you're done. Nice. And then, it has a heating one. Just stick it in the microwave. For yeah, this one can do both. So you can actually oh, nice. uh, put this one in the microwave as well. Yeah. It's got all the flexibility. And then I will plug my Astro course. This is at astrocourse.dev. I've been publishing blog articles to the blog page of that. So astrocourse.dev slash blog. And I'm going to be doing more YouTube content to kind of align with that as well. So expect... A lot of like JavaScript and Astro focused content. And then if you're interested specifically in the course at astrocourse.dev. Awesome. Everybody, you want to go? Okay. (laughs) That means Amy Amy isn't ready, by the way. No, I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) I'll go. So on the topic, if you want to learn about this a little bit more, there is a book called Building Microcontents by Luca Mizzarella. He he created this book with all his experiences on building a microcontent architecture. He's now Amazon and he basically is the person go to when there are some microphone thing questions. And I know you had Natalia a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Natalia is a great friend. And I definitely, if you need some resources, her website is amazing. The microphone yeah. their website. 
there are some more um, like decisions on what to do and what flavor microphone then you should be using. And I love, we didn't discuss this, but I love that we, that she doesn't use the word microphone then, like she uses the decouple applications uh, concept that is basically similar, but the, the problem with microphone then with the word microphone then is people think they are small and then people think they have a mm -hmm. different idea concept, of what that means idea yeah. of what that means yeah so uh, i like that the concept that, that she proposed mm -hmm. like let's not call them i mean the problem is the micro 10 term has stick like it's not like thing that you can remove but i definitely recommend that website that that she wrote on all these topics and it's not just microphone days by the way that the website has a lot of tips for any architecture of front-end application so take a look those are like plugs but i'm gonna put another plug <laughs> which is there is a conference in Malaga in November. I just want to say the CFP is open. And I went to this conference last year. I was invited in Malaga in Spain. It was one of the best conferences I've been to. It's, it was really well organized and they have, they're going for a mostly female late lineup this year. So the CFP is open. If you want to go there, I'll, I'll probably attend as well this year. I had a great time last year. So I have to, when something is done well, you try to be like, okay, let's help these, these people out and, and, and make sure that they, people go that. I mean, it's in Spain, it's a bit far from you guys, but if you want to come to Spain, that'll be amazing to, to meet in November. It's called the Weiwei Web Conference. They say again, www.weiwei <laughs> Web is in Malaga, Spain in, in November. Um, just take a look at the CFP. Awesome. I am going to pick the Lincoln Lawyer book series. So there's a fantastic Netflix series called Lincoln Lawyer, but I've been reading the books by Michael Connolly and they're fantastic. So check those out. And then I'm going to plug my Twitter. I know Twitter is kind of crazy right now, but I would love to connect with you online. I'm trying to be more intentional about the content that I put out on Twitter. So my handle is self teach me. So I would love for you to follow DM, whatever that looks like. Amazing. Cool. Thank you, Ruben, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. If you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, make sure to leave a rating and review if you enjoyed it to help other people find the podcast and for us to continue to have more amazing guests like Ruben to join us. Thank you again, everyone. In the meantime, that's all we got. <laughs>